I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, well, thanks very much for that introduction. That's done um, half of my work already, actually. Um, but I just wanted to start very briefly by talking about some work that I did about 10 years ago. So I've been writing as a journalist about the far right since 2008 or 2009. And around this time, a decade ago, I was having to go to the British Library's rare books and manuscripts room to call up restricted material from its uh, special archives, which you know, basically include right-wing extremism and pornography, and read this right-wing <coughs> extremist material uh, under security cameras, under the watch of, um, you know, the British Library security staff and librarians. And that was the only way that I, at that time, could find out about some of the key concepts that were driving the far right in Britain and elsewhere. Um, and I was reading, you know, about how groups like the BNP and other smaller extremist groups at that time had kept alive ideas that went back to the, the 1920s, 1930s, uh, fascism, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, uh, profound racism, authoritarian ideas, and so on and so on, and how they were trying to reinvent that for the 21st century. You know, so one of the things the BNP was talking about in its internal publications at that time was let's stop talking about race and start talking about identity and culture and defending our culture and defending our identity and, you know, that we just want to keep our culture separate and so on and so on. And having done that at that time, it, it's, it's been a really unsettling experience for me over the last 10 years to see how this stuff has moved from these, these very niche areas that you would have to either go into archives to look up or... Um, visit websites that were essentially just print magazines placed online to seeing this stuff circulate globally and, and be driving some of the major global news stories of our time, to see some of those concepts and ideas circulated not just by people on the fringes but by the President of the United States, you know, and so on and so on. And I think uh, Yulia Ebner's book, Going Dark, is a really, really important contribution in helping us understand how that's happened what are the ideas driving not just far-right extremist groups but other groups today um, and how we can better understand it in order to protect ourselves, I think. So um, I'd just like to start off by, by asking Yulia a bit about the experience of uh, researching and writing the book. So when you... When you started out on this project, what initially were you, were you in search of? I think what really motivated me to, to spend time within extremist movements was that, of course, we at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, for example, we use a lot of very sophisticated data analysis tools, and we can trace back pieces of disinformation, look for their origins. We can look at how big um, a campaign, a radicalization campaign, um, gets, how, how it gains traction across various uh, social media platforms. But it was very hard to 
penetrate some of the more hidden corners um, where actually some of, of, of the internal discussions were happening, some of the strategic discuss discussions, and also where some of where most of the indoctrination processes happen. I really want to see more of the human dimension and of the social dynamics within these uh, groups, both online, but also in a sense um, get a feeling for what drives people, what drives the real people behind these accounts and what um, motivates them to stay within these groups. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the groups we're talking about, they're not just white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups, but, but quite a wider range. So some yeah. of the groups that you're involved in investigating include Christian fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist um, groups linked to ISIS, um, sort of extreme misogynist groups online of, of various sorts. Um, I suppose the, the first thing I wanted to ask about there really is that the, I think you found there was a kind of common thread between them in a way that people were socialised into those groups. Like what, what drew people to these extremist corners of the internet and then the kind of communities they, they found in there. It was quite shocking to see how much of the whole radicalization process was more about, not really about the ideological component, but really more about feeling part of a community and being socialized into um, almost different subcultures. I would also say that all of these groups that I, um, that I investigated were so different in terms of their... Um, their insider references, jokes, even that they sometimes even developed their own language, as we could see with the Christchurch attacker and the attackers that we had in, in the US recently in Poway and El Paso, uh, but also in, in Halle at the synagogue shooting in Germany. They all spoke a very similar language, and you can see a pattern that they come from the same kind of online networks. And it was really shocking to see that this was a kind of a pattern within all of these groups that, um, that creating this counterculture feeling, this almost this, this youth internet culture um, was the main part of, of the radicalization process, I would say. And some individuals, especially some really young members, also were drawn into these groups without really being ideologically, uh, without really having even a political opinion before that. And some just were motivated by the sense of community or by the gamification elements. Mm, yeah, so I'd just, just like to take it back a step there into the sort of that those initial steps that some people take getting involved in one or other of these communities and it, it what comes through in the book quite strongly is it's often sort of people looking for a sense of belonging yeah and uh you know they don't maybe don't quite know why they've headed in this particular direction but yeah. what comes through is this this desire to be accepted by your peers within within this you know, the quite niche environment. And the, yeah. the thing that really stuck out for me was in your discussion of the, the white supremacist internet forums where there's this real pressure to state your, your racial purity. And um, so there's a bit in Yulia's book where, I mean, you have to kind of pass this test where they quiz you about your heritage and encourage you to take a DNA test and then post the results in the forum to yeah. show that you're, you know, kind of pure Aryan stock or whatever. But But what really stuck with me is how... Obviously, because because this is true for most of us, n nobody is pure in that sense genetically. And you have all of these 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 wannabe white supremacists who are saying, "Well, actually, I've got this heritage or that heritage." And 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 then you see the forum members get into these contortions about how well that will still accept you, or you yeah. know, how can we accept this person even though they don't fit? Yeah, yeah. That was um, some of the vetting procedures or some of the recruiting processes were really. Um, quite crazy and they actually got more more and more rigid as we saw more security forces also infiltrating some of these channels especially after the Charlottesville rally in the US um, in 2017 and especially after some of these threats were taken more seriously and you had more journalists going uh, into some of these groups they introduced things like some some even had um, demanded things that would really cross, for example, my, my moral boundaries where I would not do that. For example, taking part in a recruitment campaign was something I would not do. But um, things like submitting a picture of my, my hand uh, wrist to prove that I'm white with the, the logo of the group or yeah, the, uh, showing the results of a DNA test, which, as you say, some uh, white supremacists also in the process of finding out that they actually also had uh, non-white heritage or were from a migrant background were... Um, that also caused uh, some kind of psychological or discrepancy or almost uh, yeah, cognitive dissonance about this and where they started to question themselves in some cases and in other cases um, they still adhered to the, to the ideologies and still continued to um, yeah, 
continued to believe in conspiracy theories, for example, linked to these genetic tests. So they were all finding all kinds of justifications of why maybe the test results are screwed. Mm -hmm. And while we're still on the topic of the specifically online communities, mm -hmm. I think another important aspect of it is the way that kind of group solidarity, for want of a better word, is, is yeah. quite strictly enforced. And I'm, I'm thinking now about... Uh, the, the groups that you studied involving women in particular, where um, one of them is this this trad wives movement, which is I think Christi you know partly Christian fundamentalist and partly linked to the kind of online uh, men's rights misogynist yeah. movement as well, where you know they w within those scenes there are people kind of it's, it's kind of very detailed sort of form of indoctrination you know there are step-by-step -step guides into how to red pill yourself how to yeah. become the kind of woman that these these groups are asking you to be um i just wondered if you talk a bit about that first of all yeah to be honest the this was one case of radicalization that i had never come across um before that in my work i'd looked at mostly jihadist groups at neo-nazi and white supremacist groups but I hadn't really encountered, encountered any um, female anti-feminists or female misogynists. I'd even looked at the bigger manosphere movement, which is kind of a mosaic of different misogynist subcultures, some more extreme than others, mainly on the internet. And, and this sub-community was really, I think, one of the most shocking I've seen in terms of how the radicalization takes place because it's more it's a different kind of radicalization because these women rather develop uh, almost a hatred towards themselves instead of a hatred towards a demonized outgroup and it was um it was also one of the first movements where i could feel that i could identify with some of the topics they they addressed and they um, discussed for example of course like um, some of the the double burden issues that modern that that we face in in today's modern world as as women but also hookup culture online um, online dating apps or things like that that were discussed uh, as kind of challenges and burdens uh, for women and how to deal with those and they gave easy solutions to that which was kind of a return to a distant past in which women don't have anything to say literally they had the shut the fuck up method um, as they call it, which is, according to them, the success recipe for any healthy relationship um, to not talk back uh, if you're verbally abused. Or And this is, where it's, this is kind of where it started. So some of them, as you said, some of them were purely just very ultra-conservative, but some of them were actually also <coughs> endorsing domestic violence and were feeding into this bigger uh, misogynist subculture uh, where you you could even see, for example, the, the incel subculture within that um, that manosphere movement also inspired terrorist attacks against women, and where they were really, uh, yeah, fostering or feeding into that hatred. Mm. And one woman, inf when one female influencer of this trad wives traditional wives community, she also gives instructions, for example, for men on how to red pill their girlfriends or wives. Um, into believing in these ideologies. Red pilling is a reference to the matrix because it's kind of used by the by the far right and by the alt right, especially to uh, as a reference to the red pill that um, people take in the matrix and matrix, and all of a sudden they see the world as it truly is. So it's kind of a euphemism for radicalization. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something in that as well about I know. Other, other groups that you write about talk about this more explicitly, but like mm. it, it's made into a kind of game as well. There's this sense of, um, you know, you enter this online community and then there, then there are like kind of levels you can achieve within it. You know, you yeah. kind of follow these steps and you will get to the next level. And, yeah. You know, prove your skill or prove that you understand it better than the last. Um, but I guess also the f I'm just thinking about the way kind of boundaries are enforced around it. There's this... I don't know. I think what, what's what's really valuable about this book is because you've 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 gone into these groups in this way. You let us see what initially can be very welcoming mm. for people drawn to them. So yeah, I mean, you know, talking about the the trad wise movement, you know, it's kind of partly presenting itself as an escape from some of the the pressures of patriarchy in the twenty first century, for example. Yeah. Or you know, kind of lost young white men finding this community of people that say actually you know you belong and you're more important than you think you are and the rest of it um but then on the other side there's this very hard edge to it where 
the boundaries are, are actually very strictly enforced. And I, I was thinking in particular of what you write about the um, the so-called jihadi brides mm. scene of women who have been drawn to the Islamic State. Um, you know, in kind of supporting roles that, you know, it's got an overlap with the, the Trad Wives movement, for example, but that when the group is under threat, they cut members loose or they, you know, shut down the barriers very, very quickly, which must also be quite a common and way of behaving. Exactly. This is quite a common um, pattern. This is also the case, for example, in the white nationalist movement, Generation Identity, uh, they are very selective already in, in the recruitment procedures, but they also, if one member oversteps any any boundaries, any rules, because they have quite a universe, they have quite a standardized branding strategy across all the countries they operate in. They have branches all across Europe and also now in the UK uh, and Ireland. And when one member doesn't um, play by the rules, they are quick to kick them out. Or when one member becomes a burden. Uh, in terms of reputation or image. And that's the same also for, for example, I was also in the organization teams uh, behind the Charlottesville rally. And they even, um, in, in these organization chat uh, groups, they even called on individuals to assess their own kind of their own outward appearance and said, if you're obese, if you're not looking hip or cool enough, if you think, be honest to yourself, then just don't join the, the protest because we want to portray a good image of ourselves and attract new members. And yeah. So that was, uh, that was also something where I was, I, I couldn't, at first I actually couldn't believe that they were so um, discriminatory towards their own members, towards their own sim- sympathizers in a sense. Mm. So... Actually, I was going to talk, ask you about something else, but I'll hold it for a minute because mm-hmm. Charlottesville is a good point to talk about the relationship between this online uh, set of subcultures and, and what happens offline. Yeah. Um, so I, perhaps for audience members who aren't totally familiar with Charlottesville, do you want to just explain what that event was and it's the way it related mm-hmm. to what you were you were studying? I think Charlottesville was really one of the turning points because it, in the mobilization of the, the international old right or especially the U.S. Uh, white nationalist networks because before that we'd seen kind of in the run-up to the U.S. election to the Trump election especially all these different subcultures um, gaining ground and also cooperating more and more especially running campaigns pro-Trump campaigns uh, so you had for example the um, of course the, the racist and, and uh, uh, the racist part and anti-immigration parts of the alt-right community and the anti-Semitic parts but then you also had the conspiracy theory networks the, the misogynist networks, some kind of yeah, gaming overlaps here as well. And all these subcultures came together uh, already in the Trump election. And then Charlottesville in 2017 was the first occasion where they actually um, strategically were planning to take this whole movement offline, to do a first, to, to launch a first protest in the real world, to bring, um, yeah, to bring this resistance, as they call it, to, to life in a sense, and also to create um, a first step for, for more protests to follow. And they took, um, yeah, they, they also uh, planned, for example, most of their campaigns, both online um, and live streamed some of their, some of the footage from the protests on, on the bigger platforms, but they also coordinated everything on the gaming chat application Discord. And I was in those groups already in the lead up, I think a month or even six weeks before that, you could see that this was going to be a violent protest and then I actually decided not to go there because I felt too afraid that after so many members had posted weapons and of course in the US they chose um, Charlottesville because uh, because of the, the quite loose weapons regulations there and in the end um, a counter protester got killed, Heather Heyer she was overrun by one of the protesters in a car uh, that he drove into the, the protesters crowd so I think it was it, w- it was definitely also a turning point when looking at how to at, at how the security services and policymakers not unfortunately not the Trump administration but in general policymakers across the world were how seriously they were taking these online subcultures and um, yeah and then in the last few years I think we've seen some of these subcultures. Um, Gain traction. Some of them kind of splintered into different sub, into different groups, but it was definitely a turning point. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, to to many people outside of that world, it was it was a, a shock, obviously, to to see this happen um, so prominently. I wonder, I wonder how you felt about it at the time. Did it? Did it? I mean, obviously, because you've worked on 
extremism and these kind of groups for years and years. Was there anything kind of new about the way that developed in the wake of Trump's election that surprised you? It was it was strange to see um, anti-Semitic kind of uh, far-right sympathizers run next to um, run next to the counter-jihadist movement, which in general would be rather actually pro-Zionist uh, and which would would have not previously cooperated. So you had all these different sections of the far-right, or also paleoconservative far-right individuals running next to um, running next to the ultra-libertarian far-right parts. So. Um, counterpart. So it was um, almost an opportunistic get-together for uh, these different fractions within the far right, but they knew that by cooperating and by staging this protest together, they could have more leverage and more, uh, yeah, have a megaphone, especially also in the online world. Mm. So that was definitely one of the first things. And also some really um, extreme groups, like, for example, the, the uh, Andrew Anglin's uh, Daily Stormer community, that's a neo-Nazi website in the US, they launched quite um, big campaigns and sometimes they were tailoring different audiences um, with with a lot of very skillfully uh, kind of orchestrated campaigns. You could see that they were adopting the language of the communities they wanted to go into. It was almost a bit like when ISIS launched some of the propaganda campaigns, you could see that they were very carefully thinking about how to target these different uh, communities. Mm. Yeah, and actually this, this goes back to what I was talking about briefly in my introduction, actually, the, the kind of difference, I guess the question of what's changed, why, why has this all come to a head now, in, or at least you know, in the last few years, that um, and, until quite recently, maybe sort of five, ten years ago, my impression is that among the kind of the, the far right, there were these quite clear divisions between yeah. groups with different beliefs you know that um anybody who wanted to pursue a far-right political project that had any chance of winning widespread support yeah or even minor support had to distance themselves from anti-semitism for example so e- even when they may have well fully believed in anti-semitic conspiracy mm. theory themselves and the, the bnp are a good example of that so you know they were they're britain's most successful ever far-right political party. The people in charge of that have got their roots in the most extreme bits of the British far-right. Um, you know, they're, the people who ran the party, their core beliefs were neo-Nazi and they believed in all of this, but they knew that they would have no hope of winning votes if, if any of that came yeah. above the surface and put a lot of effort into hiding those beliefs and targeting things that had potentially more widespread appeal, such as anti-Islam bigotry um, and then you had kind of the newer wave of far right m- movements that came after that seemed to have left all of that completely behind so something like the English Defence League which emerged in 2009 um, its key players from the outset sort of actually deliberately cast themselves against the old school anti-Semitic far right they would they would fly Israel flags at their demonstrations to show you know solidarity with Israel as, as a way of attacking Muslims essentially and you know, we're, we're very focused on kind of Islamophobia, Islamophobic themes that were present in mainstream media. Um, but then what seems to have happened very, very rapidly, at least in the way that I've observed it, is that the, the walls between these things have completely collapsed, or at least to mm. a certain extent. And something like Charlottesville, I think, is one of those moments that... Yeah. There are definitely made that. rallying points that are considered as strategically important, critical junctions where they do opportunistically cooperate and where you can see them um, overcoming these ideological differences and also the geographic distances and working together as a global movement. But I think also in the past couple of years, we've again seen some fragmentation among, for example, the more anti-Semitic alt-right and and uh, uh, and. and the alt-right that is not that is rather the counter-jihadist kind of focusing on, on anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant rhetoric. But usually their lowest common denominator is their hatred of, of migrants, their hatred of, of Muslims, and their hatred of the liberal left. And that's something where they do find a lowest common denominator to build on for some of these campaigns. Mm-hmm. So maybe, I mean, maybe a better way of seeing it in that case is that developments in technology and the developments of these various online subcultures of... Mm-hmm gave an opportunity for these groups to try and 
sort of unify and unite and, and do yeah. something strong, but actually their differences remained and that has made it very unstable and that yeah. you know, people fall out as much as they try to to form something bigger and more united. Exactly. It's also interesting when looking at the last few attacks, um, the last terrorist attacks that we've only seen in, in 2019. Um, with Christchurch, the perpetrator attacked mosques. So that was clearly an anti-Muslim um, kind of act. But in his manifesto, he referenced the Great Replacement Theory, um, this idea that white, the white European populations are gradually being replaced with non-whites. And so this conspiracy theory is really seen across the, across all of these different, um, across the whole spectrum in the far-right communities. And then in Poway, uh, the perpetrator in the U.S. close to San Diego attacked the synagogue. And the same was true for Pittsburgh. That was also against the synagogue. And both of them also had the great replacement um, theory as elements of inspiration. But they took it one level kind of further and gave or blamed the global Jewish elites for um, this gradual replacement. So you can say, see different layers to these conspiracy theories inspiring actions and terrorist action and violence against different, um, yeah, different demon, demonized communities and different enemies. Yeah, and, which, well, which also sort of bringing me back to that question of what's changed, like what, what I was saying earlier about some very, you know, that... Um, well, we were talking about this before before we came upstairs. That often, when you look at these groups, it's a very puzzling mix of some extremely innovative ideas and then some very old and unchanging ones. And this mm. that conspiracy theory, very often in the media, this idea of the great replacement is talked about as if it's a kind of new, you know, some completely brand new far right conspiracy theory. But yeah. I mean, really, since the Second World War in Europe at least, the, the kind of central conspiracy theory that's driven the most extreme far-right movements has been that, you know, there's a global Jewish conspiracy to bring non-white immigration into white-majority countries and thereby dilute the white race and the rest yeah. of it. And this is a kind of new articulation of that. But sort of technology is playing a particular role there in maybe accelerating it or giving it more prominence. Yeah, you can... And also some of the anti-Semitic tropes and even today's memes, which back then we didn't have, but they still resemble, of course, the, the original anti-Semitic tropes. And they try to sometimes make them more seem more legitimate or even funny by, um, by turning them into visually appealing content. And I think that's also one of the dangers of, of these online gaming cultures, that a lot of it becomes so blurry in terms of where where is the, the where where is the line between what's still satirical kind of funny um, elements of of memes and of, of of these subcultures, and especially these trolling boards that originally weren't even political, like 4chan in the in the early 2000s, was just really about transgressing um, social boundaries, um, mm. breaking taboos, and now it's become definitely a hotbed for radicalization and um yeah it's very it's very difficult sometimes to to really to even show that this is still has still carrying is still carrying these quite old ideological elements or these conspiracy theories that are just conveyed in a different way yeah i mean there was a phrase that jumped out at me from your book that, that relates this in your discussion of this movement generation identity where you you, you quote them as saying that we want to turn resistance into a game yeah. So, I mean, for a bit of context, generation identity, I mean, you can correct me if I get this wrong, but they're kind of a fairly a, a newish far-right movement that's at least has attempted to be pan-European. Uh, they grew out of a subsection of the French far-right, mm -hmm. but it but links back to the uh, an earlier shift that I was talking about when I, in, with reference to the BNP, which was that in the 80s and the 90s, a lot of the old-school far-right parties said, well, we need to we need to kind of reframe our ideas and we'll stop talking about race and start talking about identity and how we're just trying to defend identity. And that, you know, that the BNP's rhetoric was suffused with this, you know, during the whole period when they were winning council seats across England, one, you know, they, two of their candidates were elected to the European Parliament. It was on exactly that kind of rhetoric. And then that kind of had a revival in the last few years through this generation identity movement, which yeah. managed to reframe it as being a kind of youth counterculture, which the BNP most definitely weren't because it was middle-aged and older men in suits, effectively. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk us through sort of how 
those groups did that. I mean, how, how do they kind of make this stuff fun and make it seem like a game? It's a mixture of different things. They use... Um, so on the one hand, they also it starts with language. They use euphemisms like, for example, ethnopluralism to essentially describe ethnic separatism. Um, but then they also gamify their whole from recruitment, propaganda, and then even as we we could see in the terrorist attacks, and acts of terrorism have now become gamified. Uh, for example, the neo-Nazi trolling army, but also some of the some of these generation identity. Um, trolling groups or online groups, the way that they operate is often through scoring systems where, for example, uh, members can gain points if they launch a particularly successful campaign against political opponents. And uh, Reconquista Germanica was one of the biggest trolling armies that I joined. Uh, and you had to, so they had at a certain point, there was a German, Germany-based um, neo-Nazi trolling group on the gaming application Discord. And to join, you had to go through interview processes. But then once you joined, you were designated a rank in almost like a military-like structure. So you were on the lowest strategic level when you entered um, as a kind of foot soldier. And you had generals, and you could be promoted by basically spending your entire spare time um, attacking political opponents or, or helping out in some of these online raids or uh, doing what they called, they even had military language for some of their online operations. So, for example, a sniper mission would be uh, targeting a specific enemy that they would select online with um, hate and, and, and threat campaigns. And... Um, and then also they would hijack hashtags to influence political discussions, for example, in the run-up, especially to the German elections, they did that. And um, the Supreme Commander, he even framed this whole thing as a game, but he also said, uh, almost to give them an incentive to, to play the game, uh, once, you, once we get into power, you will also, uh, we will make sure that these structures are reflected in the real world and that if you're in a higher rank, you will also, this will be mirrored in, in kind of the real world once we... Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's yeah that links nicely to what I was going to ask you about next actually, which is that um, just as a kind of final th- aspect of your you know what it was like to do the work on uh, do this kind of research undercover is that your your undercover work was not only online but it, it took you offline uh, into meetings with some of the people in yeah. these groups, and I think um, your meetings with networks of generation identity activists were very revealing in that respect and I just wonder if you could just talk us a bit through like what you learned from from doing that yeah I to be honest I didn't plan initially I didn't actually plan to to do these offline undercover encounters as well so it was more something where I again felt like I was hitting a wall in in these online conversations and I really want to know what's kind of what's happening um, in the real world as well and how this is connected to the online space and generation identity I think was one of the groups where this was most interesting to see how um, much of their really sophisticated online campaigns are how much planning there is behind it and how much strategy because um, so I went to their uh, launch of their UK and Ireland branch because I saw in some of these online groups and some of these encrypted chat apps that they were planning to set up a a branch in the UK and actually their Austrian movement I'm Austrian and their Austrian movement and also the German one they're quite influential the Generation Identity was originally founded in France but they've spread across Europe and I also wanted to prevent them from being able to tap into uh, youth uh, like youth movements and recruit a lot of young people in the UK so I kind of wanted to know what their plans are and so I was um, I reached out to them and pretended to be uh, an, an exchange student uh, an Austrian exchange student in the UK and so I went through several recruiting or several uh, recruiting procedures um, also met one of their leading identitarians in Vienna and then was invited to their initial strategy meeting, first in a pub in Mayfair and then the next day was in an Airbnb in Brixton. And uh, they had influencers and leaders from the other, from the European uh, groups come come to London actually to brief the new members on how to best do the branding, on how to best run a campaign on what to say when they're asked tricky questions by journalists, how to respond, for example, to the question, are you anti-Semitic? Are you racist? And they had a very almost standardized briefing of, of communication strategies and were using actually sometimes even scientific studies to back that up or even uh, evidence from marketing um, 
yeah, from marketing studies where they said, for example, it's all about um, uh, strategic polarization. So really staging breakthrough acts, as they call it, um, or probably more like media stunts that would attract attention, that would be explicitly provocative and be kind of at the, the verge of being socially unacceptable, but that's in order to split the population and in order to make them um, take a side, either for in their favor or um, against them, but so that they could, by yeah. doing that, create more of a movement toward political change. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And this yeah, is... Which, which yeah. again, again, is a kind of, in, in one respect, a kind of well-worn idea on the far right, like that uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen... Mm. of the, the Front National was kind of known as the, the sort of pioneer of doing that, of deliberately saying offensive things that would cause a backlash and force people to take one side or another. Yeah. But this is using kind of new techniques by sort of organising online, but then, I mean, I feel this this gets a bit over overemphasised by the press when they cover these movements, but making it seem young and part of youth culture and, and the rest of it. Yeah, that's something that Generation Identity does really well. And as I said earlier, they even, uh, when they choose, for example, the public faces for their campaigns, they even consider things like age or how good does this person look. So they would, um, in the UK, they, they didn't let one or even two members, um, be their public faces because they considered them as being too old. Mm-hmm. And that was something I didn't really know that they were so strategic about it. But it's also um, in regards to that strategic polarization tactic, that's, of course, also something that we find on all sides of the political fringes and that actually jihadist movements, um, we usually then call it management of sav- savagery, where they also try to provoke as much chaos as possible and drive communities apart in order to, um, to yeah, to, to basically change the power dynamics. Yeah, which... Yeah, I mean, brings me on, on to another area of conversation, really, which is that, I mean, how much that we can find out about these kind of extremist groups mm-hmm. is just really a way that wider politics now works. You know, how much how much are they doing something innovative with technology or actually are we, we kind of all behaving in this way as well when we use social media or form communities online and the rest of it? Yeah, that's, a bit, that's the... The biggest challenge, I think, right now is that, of course, the way that the algorithms work and the way that the business models are designed, um, they try to make users stay on the platform as long as possible. So they try to capture our attention. But the problem is that what captures our attention tends to be violent content, extremist content, even conspiracy theories. And also the people that spend most time online on YouTube, for example, would usually be addicted people, people. people who believe in conspiracy theories, people with extremist views, and those are the ones that get to train the algorithms for us, for all of us. So um, the content that would then be automatically recommended by YouTube or also by other social media platforms would often tend to get more and more extreme and you quickly get down a rabbit hole even if you have um, a, a neutral account. So that's really ingrained in the or that's one of the problems really um, inherent to the business models of, of the social media platforms and basically of most tech platforms that want to maximize attention. Yeah, I mean, is there, I mean, now, for those reasons, there's a lot of anger expressed at those social media platforms. Um, But as somebody who works on what to do about this stuff, as well as identifying it and describing it, what realistically could these large tech platforms be doing to, to improve that situation? Some of them have already taken some initial action, but the problem is, so we talk a lot also at 
the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we work a lot with um, kind of at the intersection of policy, um, but also with the tech firms. We try to um, give them advice on, on how to uh, yeah, prevent people from getting radicalized on their platforms. They don't always take the advice, but uh, they have already taken some steps. But the problem is that proactively, there's only so much that they do. And that's usually to have a damage limitation in terms of their reputation or to respond to political, to new regulation or to, to political actions. So it's usually quite responsive and rather than proactive. I think um, what effectively should happen and what is already kind of in the process right now, um, in the UK there's a white paper on online harms, which hopefully will um, kind of put more responsibility onto the platforms um, to make them more accountable for, for the content that they do prioritize with their algorithms. Uh, in France, there is also a new law that um, that is more uh, that really tries to enhance uh, visibility, or well, actually, yeah, the um, the kind of the, the visibility or the the transparency of how the algorithms work and why people are being suggested uh, certain content or are being recommended certain content. And in Germany, you have anti-hate speech laws, which have been a good start, but also meant that a lot of the satirical content or even news reporting content was accidentally taken down in the beginning. So you do have implementation problems because it's really hard to train um, the algorithms to be very precise in those gray zone areas. Ultimately, um, there's, we definitely need to, to take down some of these really violent contents. It can't be the case that after Christchurch or even after the last uh, attack in Thailand, these live-streamed violent videos stay online for hours and are being re-uploaded. And there is definitely an international approach that's needed because as we had the, the global coalition against ISIS, for example, which really was a coalition of countries across the world working together and removing ISIS propaganda materials. We don't really have anything similar for for far-right extremist content or even for, for far-right terrorist groups. There is no international strategy because we don't even have a definition of what or we don't even agree on a definition of what far-right terrorist movements would be and they function as you said in a much more loose kind of network form rather than traditionally organized locally rooted groups so there are lots of challenges and ultimately i don't believe that we can take down everything that's harmful or even um, radicalizing. I think we really need to uh, have better intervention strategies, especially for some of these fringe platforms where also the Christchurch and the, the other terrorist att attackers radicalized themselves, which aren't really being uh, given much attention at the moment. There's a whole world of, of really extreme fringe platforms where we don't have any online intervention programs to bring people back and out of these, mm -hmm. these networks. And I, I think another aspect of the problem that you, you get at towards the end of the book is that, you know, there are, you know, in one respect, this is a problem of these huge global profit-making companies that have grown up around these platforms mm -hmm. and you have national governments trying to deal with this thing that they maybe don't quite understand and, you know, has no respect for borders or any other ways in which, you know, national governments would traditionally try and regulate an issue. But... At, the same time, this is a this is a relatively new form of communication that all of us are using without really fully understanding. And that um, I was very interested in what you had to say about the the other side of it, which is how the kind of tools that individuals can develop as they use uh, social media platforms or other things online to mm -hmm. deal with this. And 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 what really summed that up for me is that in so you you have a chapter about hackers and you know. Uh, very sophisticated hacking networks that are linked to far-right extremist groups or other kind of malicious groups yeah. online. And there's a post you quote that, that one of the kind of prominent hackers says, okay, here are the basic things you need to know to, to, kind, of, to kind of get on in this world. And I, I mean, it's, you know, learn C22, learn just a little bit of x86 assembler, learn JavaScript, work through hacking the art of exploitation by Ericsson and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to... To the majority of people, that's a completely baffling list yeah. and perhaps suggests that, you know, as an individual internet user, you're going to be at a loss in this very technologically sophisticated yeah. environment. So, but, it, but it's not as bad as that makes it sound, I think, you're trying to get at towards the end of the book because there are, 
various kind of tools and ways of thinking about it we we can all sort of develop and encourage so i just wondered if you could talk, sort of explain yeah exactly those I, a bit. Uh, one of the problems is that even some of and this is really this is actually still quite low skill hacking that some of these um extremist groups are doing and even that can cause a lot of damage but then there are also other campaigns um intimidation campaigns that can have a big effect without really having to be technological technologically savvy without even having to be a big group of people if you coordinate a campaign in an encrypted messaging app you can launch a much a really disproportionate disproportionately loud campaign um and get a megaphone through the by tricking the algorithms um so I do think, and that's also why in the, in the solutions chapter, I present some innovative initiatives that we're already seeing across the world, where um, civil society campaigners have founded their own, for example, counter-trolling armies or their own, uh, their own health networks for people who are, uh, for example, a network called Hate Aid for people who are being targeted by, by such intimidation campaigns or threat campaigns. And we have seen death threats, sexual threats um, being targeted also in the UK most recently against British MPs, uh, but also journalists, especially mm. female journalists, face that a lot. And also even researchers, artists. I think it is really a challenge that is increasing and has become much more urgent in the last few years. So we'll hopefully see more of such campaigns. And it's in the end, it's also about fostering both um, kind of digital citizenship or a sense of being, um, yeah, having digital, having, having civil courage, but also in the digital space. Because often we see campaigns and no one, and, and everyone sees that someone's being targeted and yet no one steps in. And I think there is also a sense of okay, we so need to... What would that mean in practice then? So, like, you know, digital mm. citizenship is a very noble-sounding yeah. phrase, but, like, how could, what, what, the thing, what are the ways that, say, people when they leave here this evening could start thinking differently about how they use the internet, for example? I guess one of the, one of the main things is, um, yeah, civil courage, as you would step in if you see someone being discriminated or shouted at in on the, or insulted on the tube, um, to also step in in the online space. Because actually there's even a lower risk to it, but the, the, the effect that one can have by helping someone online is, is, is quite big. And often... Um, the people who run some of these campaigns or who participate in the campaigns also don't really think about, um, don't really grasp the fact that there is a human person behind the account. So there's often, and also the bystanders sometimes don't think about other users in, um, in real terms. So it's easier to look away, but I think getting back to this uh, getting back in this human sense and actually how much people do feel that their online presence has an impact on their real life i think is important so mm -hmm. and yeah. there are there are even some attempts as you mentioned to kind of organize that kind of response as well mm -hmm. aren't there do you, i mean is it yeah, estonia that had they have they have the Baltic elves which fight the Russian trolls. So they fight um, disinformation, and it's actually it's quite a I think it's it's a really a promising campaign that could also or a promising network that could also come to other European countries. They have um, in, in Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, uh, in varying sizes, people spend their spare time debunking Russian disinformation and launching counter campaigns. But that's a civil society initiative, which also tends to have much more credibility than than any kind of top-down government-led campaigns. And in Germany, there is a campaign called um, uh, Ich bin hier. It originated, I think, from a Swedish... Um, Jak, uh, no, my Swedish isn't good, so I, I, have, I, I have no idea, actually, what it's in Swedish, but it was originally a Swedish campaign. Um, and they, uh, they basically, whenever a newspaper article is flooded with negative comments, for example, um, anti-migrant or anti-refugee comments, especially in Germany and in Sweden, that's huge, uh, or also anti-Muslim comments, they would step in and, and um, coordinate a more positive response. So coordinate posting positive comments about the article and then uh, give each other likes on Facebook. So that then brings their comments on top of everyone else's comments. And by that, they almost bury the, the negative comments in the depths of, like, yeah, of, of the algorithms, basically. So the first thing that comes up is positive rather than negative. And I think in terms of also influencing the, the overall atmosphere online, because it's become so polarized and so hateful, um, and especially in the UK also with, with Brexit, it's just so divided. Everything seems so divided and so um, negative that I think this could be a really good initiative also 
um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying as well is that I, th I think for a lot of people, the temptation in, in the face of all mm. of that is to kind of disengage and switch off, to, yeah. to just assume that everything on, you know, all comments on the internet are trash and you shouldn't go anywhere near them. Yeah. But actually, this sounds like a bit of a call not to do that and to actually see a value in engaging all the same, perhaps with some organization around it. That seems I think to be on the, the... Yeah, on the mainstream platforms, on the bigger platforms, that's definitely the case. I also just thought there is actually also an English branch of that. They're called I am here. Um, hashtag I am here. And, but, but in the... I wouldn't recommend the normal users to go onto the fringe, the really nasty neo-Nazi forums and start intervening there. I don't think that makes any sense. I think that's probably best, um, yeah, done by, by professionally trained intervention providers. But in the normal, like in the daily life kind of online conversations and debates that are happening, I do think that there's a huge value in getting back these, uh, getting, yeah, getting back um, the, these conversations by showing that actually some of the people who, uh, who spread these really hostile comments are in the minority and just being given a, a megaphone by the way that the algorithms promote their content. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've got just a few minutes left now, so I just wanted to ask uh, two final questions. Uh, the first is if you could give us a few predictions. I know you get to that at the end of your book. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a moment where people might be quite worried and uncertain about these these new developments you know you've seen some quite disturbing things emerge over the last few years that have translated into offline you know political developments uh mass shootings the rest of it how, how is that all likely to change over the years to come one of the things that i'd like to see more is um that actually, that's kind of half replying to your question, but is people looking or people in the space of counter extremism and the security forces, policymakers who deal with these issues, looking more at the next technological innovations? Because extremists always are early adopters of technologies of innovations. Um, and I think, especially things like AI based tools like deepfakes could become a huge asset to them for spreading disinformation, for actually manipulating entire videos. Now it's, it's, it's on the positive side, it's used for synchronizing, synchronizing movies, for really making um, people seem to say different things from what they're saying, which can be helpful if people speak a different language. But it can also be used to manipulate what, um, what uh, Barack Obama is saying or what Merkel is saying. Um, and you can, in retrospect, manipulate any kind of footage, but the same is true for text-based tools. You can create a text that looks, from the syntax, looks as if uh, a famous journalist has written it, and in fact, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a fake. And I think some of those developments, but also, of course, looking at, at hacking, at um, doxing, at phenomenons like that, and um, seeing how we can tackle those, I think... The other things that um, that did, aren't really that are only covered when I consulted ten different counterterrorism experts in one of the last chapters are things to also bear in mind that of course now we're seeing kind of a resurgence of far right extremists of misogynist extremists jihadism is still a topic but there might also be other players in the future I do think that the misogynist uh, communities, they are definitely gaining ground or they are becoming bigger and more influential. So I would see that as a potential uh, yeah, for future mobilization. In general, I would say there are two different challenges that lie ahead. I'm quite, to be honest, I'm quite pessimistic for the short run, but I'm also very optimistic about the medium and long term. I think those two challenges are on the one hand more more of the kind of violence that we saw in the last year, especially gamified terrorism, um, terrorist attacks that are, uh, yeah, that come in a similar shape and form as we had those ISIS-inspired terrorist attacks, a form of copycat terrorism, um, yeah, a form of inspirational terrorism given, given by those networks, by these really loose international networks where the, the attackers are always glorified and people try to repeat the game, essentially the mm -hmm. game. It's not really a game, but the gamified terrorism act. And, um, and on the other hand, the political mainstreaming of some of these ideologies already, as you said, we've seen uh, Trump, we've seen uh, political frontrunners uh, across Europe mentioned, for example, or giving air to great replacement and other conspiracy theories and using the language, the memes of, of the far right and, and the alt right. And, um, and 
the fact that this can be coupled with really sophisticated disinformation campaigns like using deepfakes, I think this might also lead to uh, a normalization of some of this and the mainstreaming. Mm -hmm. And then just finally, I wanted to bring it back to what we were talking about at the outset, which is the particular work that you did <clears throat> uh, to research the book. Uh, and I was just interested sort of personally for you, you know, obviously you had to spend a lot of time immersed in these scenes, going undercover, but sort of putting on fake identities, I mean, in, including wearing a blonde wig at one point, I think, when yeah. you went to meet people. And I just wondered, sort of, what were your, what were your kind of ethical lines as you did that? So at all points, I would not do anything that would help them with their recruitment campaigns or the propaganda campaigns. I was, of course, asked also when, when joining, for example, Generation Identity, um, do you want to be the public face of a campaign? Could you help us with um, translating these materials from German into English? Things like that. Um, I m did make promises, to be honest, but I didn't do it. Um, mm -hmm. And I did, I did my very best to protect the the identity of non-public individuals. I think it's a very yeah, it's of course a very sensitive area. Um, and yeah, there were some. Uh, there were definitely also some moments where I did emphasize with individuals and where it was difficult to draw a line, to not step in in the moment and, for example, debunk a conspiracy theory or try to get them out of the movement um, because I could see that they were uh, young and, and just yeah joining the movement without really knowing what they were doing. But in those cases, I thought it's more valuable to, to kind of collect the information to, um, to then provide hopefully enough grounds for more for for bigger campaigns or bigger intervention programs that are then also carried out by people who are more mm. um, yeah focusing on that or who are professionally trained psychologists i mean did you did you also find yourself liking people you know despite their views yeah of course and i mean there were so many moments where i even forgot that they were um That, that they were propagating these really vile and nasty ideologies. There were, of course, moments of... And, but these were also the moments that gave me hope because it's exactly seeing those human dimensions, even among the most extreme of extremists, that uh, make you believe that intervention at any stage of the radicalization process and de-radicalization is possible by using those human dimensions as a starting point. Yeah, and I think... I mean, this is a good point to conclude on, really, because I think we're, we're just about out of time. Um, It's, I think this is what's so valuable about this book as well is that you, you don't just sort of help us understand how one might in, intervene, you know, as an individual or, a, you know, a government trying to make policy to get people out of these circles, but yeah. what it is that it helps you understand what, what would attract people in the first place because you're able to put yourself in, in their shoes and let readers do that as well. Um, and, I mean, to me, it's what it comes down to is this idea of community. I mean, that's in, in all of the cases, in whichever kind of distorted and dangerous ways, that's something common to what everybody is looking for when they engage with these groups. Yeah, it's exactly. That was something from those um, red-pilled women or the trad wives and uh, female misogynists through to the neo-Nazis, the jihadists. They were essentially all looking, sometimes even for family replacements, for, but for some sense of community, for some yeah, form of, of love in the end. It, it sounds like cheesy, but that's essentially what the conclusion was as well, that they were, um, and they were given that. Unfortunately, they were given that very... Um, sometimes very easy solution to that. For example, in the, the, the red pill women community, you could, it, they even gave you a feeling of, of kind of being a self-help forum or um, yeah, a counseling forum for women. And I think it's that what makes some of these movements so appealing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, well, I think we're, we're about out of time. Uh, but that is a very good, provocative and unsettling point to end on, I think. You know, thinking about well, if people are being drawn to these kind of groups and they're finding that welcome or that community, well, why is that missing elsewhere? Yeah. So, um, you know, I hope we can continue this kind of conversation at, at a later date. Um, I'd like to thank Yulia again for, for writing the book, first of all, but for also coming here and talking to all of us about it. Um, thanks to the LRB bookshop for hosting the event and to everybody for coming i hope you will stick around and take a look at the book afterwards uh, have have a read buy a copy and then read it think about it 
that's what all authors want you to do, really. <laughs> so um, for now, I'd just like you to join me in thanking Yulia for her. Uh, Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.